0: The book of Ephesians, please, in the latter part of the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, as we are headed towards the last chapter of that book, Ephesians chapter 6. Before we get into it, I want to thank you for being here this morning. appreciate that you would come in the busyness of all your week, and you would join us. Those of you joining us on live stream as well, thank you so much for coming, for being here, being interested in wanting to hear from the Word of God. And we read from the Word of God in Ephesians 6, down in verse 10, these words. Finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for you wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand The Apostle's dealing with that issue of us being in a spiritual battle, that we are facing the idea that we've talked about the last couple of weeks that we've met and gone through this passage. We're facing a conflict with spiritual forces, with demons that are around about us, that are attacking. This battle that we face, it's unavoidable. This battle that we face, every one of us is involved in. The idea is that he's using the plural repeatedly, that they're coming against us. We don't have to go and pick a fight. The fight's coming. Coming to us. The idea is that it has serious consequences. It's a life and death battle in many, many ways, as we've illustrated. The idea is that this enemy is one that's formidable and we are at a disadvantage in and of ourselves. Because this enemy is one that's extremely powerful. We've talked about that. This enemy is well organized. That idea, the principalities, the powers, the rulers, that they have a systematic way of approach. They're experienced. They've been attacking humankind since the Garden of Eden. We pointed out as well that they are extremely clever, very intelligent. Then the passage refers to the wiles of the devil. And they're well armed. And the fact that they have these fiery darts. What we talked about somewhat last week, and what we wanted to pick up this week is, what are some of the fiery darts? What are some of the areas that we're attacked in? Before we delve into the passage about the panoply and how we're supposed to defend, let's make sure that we're aware of what areas that we might be attacked. Last week we talked about persecutions. We talked as well about false doctrines, and then the idea of religious imposters. We talked as well about occultic practices that could come and persuade people to go away from the Word of God. God. We talked about murder because he was the murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. Satan uses that. Crime, violence, things of that sort to attack. We focused last week in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan, in that very first attack, he created doubt, and then denied the Word of God, and also, within Eve's own heart, created disappointment, where all of a sudden he got her thinking about that one tree that she didn't have. She forgot all about all the provisions that God has made, and she focused on that one thing. And we talked about how that frequently comes in our lives. I want to build up a little bit this week and deal with some other texts that we're going to jump to. Some of them I'm just going to put up here. But there's another way that he had Tax and one is pride. I remember hearing the story that Ronald Reagan years ago told about himself that he said that when he went down to Mexico one time representing the United States he was asked to give a speech. There he was amidst of other speakers. It was his turn to get up so he got up and he gave a speech. He said there was a little enthusiastic response, hardly any, and then when he got done on top of it it was just very sporadic applause and he was kind of confounded about that didn't understand why people weren't more engaged in the speech and it fit the scene so well and he sat down and then the next speaker got up he the next speaker spoke f- totally in spanish Ronald Reagan had no idea what the guy was saying, but the crowd started responding and clapping in the middle of statements. And they were very energetic, and he thought, well, I don't know what he's saying, but I'm going to just be like the crowd. So as the man was speaking, he started doing this, sitting back here, smiling and giving, giving different types of gestures, like, I'm all for what the guy was saying. Finally, the ambassador leaned over and said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He said, why not? He's interpreting your speech. He's saying exactly what you said. You know, it's easy to all of a sudden get caught up in the moment. And Reagan used it as a, as a funny story. Be careful about getting caught up with yourself. Well, in the Word of God, we find out that Satan got caught up with himself. We tie, read in Isaiah and we read in Ezekiel where there's pictures, King of Tyre and other titles given to this character who is personifying Satan who Satan all of a sudden said, I will be like the Most High, caught up in his own beauty, in his own, in his own abilities. Pride caught Satan into that, moving that rebellion against the Lord God. Well, he still uses it. In 1 Timothy 3, he is writing to a church like our church, and he's saying, hey, be careful when you choose individuals to be in leadership. you got to be careful. Don't, plant, don't pick somebody who is a newly planted one, a neophyte. Not a novice, as many of our Bibles read. Why not? He says, because it is easy for a novice to get full of himself. To get lifted up with pride. And then he says, that way he's going to fall into the condemnation or the same path that the devil took. Boy, that happens so easy. So many times we're caught caught up with our own name. Our own recognition. So many times we're caught up with people acknowledging us and, and giving us what honor we think has come to us. I remember reading a story about the Cunard shipping lines They years ago when they had built what we know as the Queen Mary, when they built that ship and they were la- looking to name it, they decided to name it after one of the royals. And the story has it that the leadership of the company went to King George at the time and they were going to ask him for his permission to be able to use the name of someone in his royal family. They had in mind his grandmother whom many considered the greatest queen of of, uh, their time. And she at that time had the longest rule and reign of any British monarch. So they came and they didn't identify her. They just say, We want to name the ship after the greatest queen of Britain that Britain has ever had. Well, King George responded immediately and said this, My wife, Queen Mary, will appreciate the honor you're showing to her. He just assumed it was about him and his family. It was about him and his wife. It is easy for us to do the same thing. To say, hey, it's about me. Make sure you look at me. Make sure that everybody sees me. Be careful of pride. Be careful as well of discouragement. This was preached last Sunday night by Pastor Art in a series on First Peter that he's been going through. In chapter 5, he brought up this verse. So I don't want to elaborate upon it, but remember... That whole passage about beware because the enemy is going about seeking whom he may devour. Remember, as was pointed out last week, that Satan attacks, he seeks after, and usually he uses discouragement. The verses before, the verses after are dealing with suffering and afflictions and problems and cares and difficulties. Be careful, because Satan often attacks And tries to create discouragement in our lives. This is exactly what happened to Paul. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing the letter. And as he's writing to the church, the problem is, many of the church people, they're questioning whether Paul is really an apostle. So he's writing, and he's giving his own personal story. And as he's doing that, he's telling some of what he felt. And he describes himself, he says, "...we were pressed out of measure." at one point, above strength. Literally, the idea is we were crushed by our circumstances. We felt that the money pressures, the job pressures, the school pressures, the physical care of of one in our family was just overwhelming, and we didn't know how we could keep on going. Well, later on in the book, he's talking about that idea that we were just so overwhelmed that he says, here are some of the things that came to us, and he lists them out shipwrecks. There was hunger. There was times when there was no sleep. There was physical attacks. I was beaten multiple times. He says, and then on top of it, the care of the churches and the attacks by the false teachers, the exposure to the elements. He says, it was really discouraging. It was really difficult. And on top of that, he says, there was sent unto me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The idea that buffet has this idea to continuously torment, the idea to beat me down and many understand this, that Paul has some type of ailment in the flesh, some type of difficulty, whatever it may be. But it was so overwhelming to him at moments that he said, I went to the Lord three times, and I asked the Lord that it might depart from me. Take away this illness. Take away this pain. Take away this with this problem. But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, my, in, for in my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response when he heard that from the Lord, that God can use the difficulty, that God can help him through, Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know, it's easy to get discouraged when all of a sudden you're facing an illness. You're facing a job loss. You're facing some type of challenge, some difficulty with a loved one. You're facing just the idea of unemployment. You're facing some crises in your family. Be careful. The enemy would have you get discouraged and quit. He also uses another type of an attack, immorality. Now, I don't want to belabor this. I've spent the last couple Sundays in Sunday school dealing with the homosexuality movement, with transgenderism. And so we talked about this passage during those times where we talked about how to avoid any type of sexual improprieties. He says, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. That they render to each other the proper conjugal rights. That they have intimacies on a a basis that would keep them from Satan's attacks because he would tempt you for your lack of self-control. And so he's making it very clear that Satan would use this area This area of natural appetite to try to draw us away from the Lord. Let me get another one. Worldliness. Worldliness. Take your Bibles and go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Back a couple chapters to get the setting of what's happening. In Ephesians chapter 2, he's going to warn this group of believers. And as he's warning them, he's talking about where they used to be. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you has he quickened who were one time in the past dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in the time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, in other words, the unsaved, they continue in this as a general rule of thumb, among whom also we all had our Conversation, Our lifestyle in times past where we were fulfilling the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as many others, but God, who is rich in mercy. So he's pointing out in this text just some issues about how he's got a problem. Gentlemen, I'm having a problem with the screen. Something locked up on us. And so then what he's doing, he's talking about in the past, we were dominated in that sense by Satan. That he was controlling and he was guiding us into those areas of fulfilling the lust of the flesh and those types of issues. Go a little bit further in the text, and he says that what we need to do is we need to change. We need to put off in following the desires of the flesh. He mentions that in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he says in verse 22, put our, or 20, yeah, chapter 4, 22, put off concerning the former lifestyle. What he's just talked about, the former lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful us, the former walking after the prince of the air. And he says instead, verse 24, put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Then he goes on and he mentions some specifics. He mentions about what we're supposed to be putting off. We're supposed to be putting off things that Satan wanted us to do. The lying, the uncontrolled anger, the stealing, the bad speech, the wrath, the malice. And instead, in the next few verses, he says, put on charity. You work so you can give. Put on compassion. Put on a good work ethic. Put on putting off the anger and putting on graciousness. He talks about how in our speech we're to put on good words, having kindness, forgiving one another, complimenting one another. Get rid of this past lifestyle that was worldly and you change in your lifestyle. In the way you act, the way you walk, the way you talk, and how you conduct yourself. And be careful you don't have a sloppy testimony The reason I say that Satan uses this is back again in that passage talking about leadership in the church, but also applies to all. He says in this passage, he says that the man that you're choosing for a church leader, he's to have a good report of them that are without. What's a good report? What's a good report? Okay, it's the idea of reputation, testimony. Okay, what he's known about. Who are the people that are the without? Okay, he's talking about the people in the community. He's talking about people outside of the body of Christ. Talking about individuals that, that know the person. Now let me ask you a question. What might that be? What might, you're saying, okay, we want to pick somebody to be the pastor. He has to have a good report of them that are without. What kind of things might that include? Okay, should be compassionate. What else? be honest, have a testimony amongst his neighbors of honesty. Anything else? Okay, good speech. Anything else? A work ethic? Okay. What's that? Knowledge? Knowledge? Okay. So what he's talking about is just those simple things that the world would look at. The world would say, hey, listen, this guy is somebody that we would consider, hey, following, somebody who pays their bills... Somebody who's a decent neighbor, somebody who has a good work ethic at work, that the fellow employees, that he's consistent in lifestyle. And he goes on in the passage and he answers this question why should we check a guy's reputation? He makes this comment lest he fall into the reproach, that is the accusations that stick. The reproach, the justifiable criticisms, and the snare of the devil. What he's talking about is that the, the outsiders might criticize the church. Does it stick? They might criticize the Christ because this guy is preaching Christ, but look at how he lives. And so he's saying he's got to have a good testimony, not a sloppy testimony in the community, so that even those people who are the neighbors, that they would have a, a regard for this individual as somebody who's consistent. Stay stay away from having a sloppy testimony. In other words, let's ask the questions. Let's do a little bit of testing of our hearts. With just what we've just gone through, a brief grocery list, some of you are already drifting, so let's come back together. Let's ask ourselves this question. How are you doing when it comes to purity? When it comes to sexual purity, in what you look at, in how you conduct yourselves? Satan would have you get caught up in doing things that are wrong. Fornication. Any type of immorality. The word is pornea. You know what word we get from that. Pornography. How are you doing in this? How are you doing when it comes to keeping your mind on pure thoughts? How are you doing when it comes to the reputation you have amongst your classmates? The reputation you have where you work. Are you one thing here and another thing outside? What, what about this idea? Do, do people look at and say, Hey, listen, he isn't walking after the lifestyle of the prince of the air. His speech is different. He or she talks in such a way that, that what they do is they have a good attitude of respect towards those in authority. Oh, that, that person, they at work, they have a good work ethic. They're not lazy. They've put off that type of lifestyle. They've put on the idea of working decent. What type of jokes do they laugh at? Uh, that, that, yeah, don't tell it to so-and-so. He doesn't think those types of jokes are funny. What, what type of reputation do you have when you play sports? The one that gets quickly angry, over competitive, dissing the other people? What about self-control? What about this area of when the movies you talk about, the movies you watch... Are they one that that would cause somebody to go, you, a believer, you watch that? What about when it comes to you being careful with your testimony of how you act, how you walk, how you talk, how you drive? Be careful. Satan would have you to get sloppy, to let down your guard, because all of a sudden there's that slippery slope. So Satan, in his cleverness, he attacks in all these areas, but there's another one he attacks. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy flooded the very early church. We often talk and we say, man, that early church, that was a fantastic church. First message they gave, 3,000 got saved. Yes, good. And then they were just so, everybody was so dedicated and there was no problems, but there was some things that happened. Satan got into the back door. And Satan got very active right in the middle of the church. Right in the middle of doing something good. You see what happens in Acts chapter 5 is there's a need. Some people all of a sudden need some assistance. And it's being made known that some of the believers, they lost their jobs because of their faith. Some of the believers, they, they, they just aren't able to produce the, the garden that they had hoped. And so we have some of the widows that because of their faith, their family is no longer caring for them. We got to help one another out. And so some of the people within the church body, they decided that they would go the extra mile and they started selling some of their goods, their household goods, so they'd have money to be able to bring to the church service and distribute to the people in need. Really good. Something commendable. Something that Jesus says was right, as long as you don't do your alms for display, don't do your your charitable giving, which is a good thing. He says, just don't do it so others see you as he mentioned in Matthew 6. Well, all of a sudden, within this church, people are getting on board, and they're helping, and they're being generous, and it talks about how nobody had a great need because they were sharing, and they were meeting one another's needs. But there was a couple in the church that they saw that this was a good thing, and isn't it interesting how Satan can attack the good things, how Satan can distort the really good stuff, and so he comes in and he sees people giving and he puts it within the heart of one of the couples there in the church. We want to do this too. We want to give. And what happened as the story unfolds, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a piece of property. So they did what jo- but Barnabas, Joseph, and others were doing. They sold the property, which was fine. They could sell it. They could keep it. There was nobody compelling them to forcing them to sell the property and give the money to the church. But they sold the property They could have kept the money, but what they did is they took part of it, and they kept it aside for themselves, and they brought another part of it to the church, and they presented to the church body, we sold our property, and this is all we got. They lied. They lied about it. And they presented it as, look at what we're doing. Aren't we grand and great? We have sold. We're so charitable. We're so, oh, everybody. You know, And they wanted the, you know, the pat on the back. When Ananias comes in, Peter confronts him, and he makes this comment to him when he challenges him. And he's, oops, I wanted to do too far. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? To lie to the Holy Ghost, and God disciplined him. He dropped down dead. His wife comes in, and Peter asks, "Is it really true what you guys said? Is this all the monies?" And she drops down dead because she lied as well. And Peter makes it very clear: you could you could have kept it. You could have kept it all. That's not the point. The point wasn't the money. The point was how you presented yourself. The point isn't you know exactly what we give. It's do we brag on it? Do, do we falsely present ourselves as great prayer warriors, as charitable people, as Bible scholars? Do we falsely present ourselves as witnesses, as people who are so compassionate? But then we go out and we slay one another with our words. The hypocrisy is something that Satan would have this room Engage in time and time again to sing about take my life and let it be, but in the heart, take my wife and let me be. God doesn't want your hypocrisy, God wants your genuineness. Satan would have you focus on yourself. And so you have to ask yourself, Where am I? Do I pray the way that I present myself? Do I read my Bible? Like you pr- seem to want to have others think. Are you serious about serving and following the Lord? Where is your heart when it comes to pleasing the Lord? Or is it all about just impressing other people? Satan's clever. Satan's so clever. He wants to get you to love everybody here, but walk out the door and slay That's because one of the greatest tools that Satan uses is division division within the body of Christ. You know, there are multiple texts that talk about it. 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the believers in that church, and he's warning them, and he tells them, hey, listen, you have got to forgive somebody who has repented of their sin. You you challenged him as a congregation. You did some type of of public... uh, Challenge to him, he repented, but some of you refuse to talk to him. Some of you will have nothing to do with him. And he says, Hey, listen, you got to forgive and comfort him, lest he be swallowed up with sorrow, lest Satan should get an advantage of us. Makes it clear Satan will use this divisiveness in the church. He will use a lack of fellowship, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of unity within the body of Christ. That's not the only text that he talks about. He talks about it in 1 Timothy 5. In this passage, he's talking about caring for the widows. He's talking about those who need some type of assistance. And he's giving limitations there. And he's saying, don't take into the number of the widows certain aspects. And he gives qualifications for where you're going to assist them with financial accommodations to help meet their needs. And he warns in this text, he says that they'd learn to be, they don't want to do this, learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, taddlers, busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. What's that mean, taddlers and busybodies? Gossipers. Gossipers. Running around, telling some things. And he goes on, he says, give no occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, to make an accusation against yourselves that sticks. For some have already turned aside after Satan. What's he mean? He's meaning that those who engage in gossip, in bearing stories that ought not to be told, in tearing down others, you've bitten into the hook of Satan's lure to get you to get into sin. And you've got to spit it out. You've got to disconnect from it. You've got to stop it. There's another text that talks about it. Ephesians chapter 4. Where in Ephesians 4 it says, Be angry, but sin not. Anger has its appropriate places. Jesus was angry in the temple. There is a righteous indignation. But he goes on, he says, Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. He's warning us that when we get angry, it is easy for us to hang on, harbor the anger, the upset towards a spouse, towards a family member, towards a brother, towards a sister, towards a fellow believer, to the point that we will not talk with them. We will not have association with them. We don't want to forgive them. We want to sit at the supper table in total silence. We want them to be in another room. We don't want to go and visit that relative anymore. And he's warning us. He says, be careful, lest Satan should get a place in your heart and in your life. So this idea of stubbornly remaining angry is serious. It's dangerous. Do you remember hearing that story about a ship that was there on the seas at night approaching its destination? And it saw way off in the distance, it saw another ship, another light. And so they gave a warning, a signal that says, turn your course, whatever it be, 10 degrees, go on a collision course. They got the message back that said, you alter your course by 10 degrees. Well, the captain of this one ship was known for his stubbornness. He told the radio man, he says, you signal back. We're a freighter. We're such a big ship. Da, 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 da. You alter your course. We're not changing ours. They got back the signal. No one care how big you are. You alter your course. The captain said, signal back to them. That the captain of this ship has 25 years' experience. They better alter their course. They got a signal back. With all respect, sir, we're a lighthouse. You change your course. Many here can simply fall into being like the captain of that ship. I am going to stubbornly hang on to some hurt, to some anger, to something, and I don't want to alter my course. You're headed for trouble. the person you're going to hurt is yourself. You need to not fall into Satan's, Satan's traps of hanging on to bitterness and anger. He also warns us in James. In James, he talks about how there's certain types of wisdom. And he talks about one that he says, hey, listen, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, don't glory about this. Don't brag that you're upset with somebody. Don't make it a tale that you share with others that you can tear down an individual. Lie not against the truth. Don't exaggerate the situation. Don't continue talking and and talking about that person and not giving the full story. He says, Wait, wait a minute. This is not wisdom that descends from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. Literally from hell. He says, You gotta get rid of that. You gotta be careful. You know, Satan loves to get us to assume the worst about one another. To just assume that others, they, they don't respect me the way that they should. They don't appreciate me the way that they should. They don't keep their word the way that they should. This is exactly what happened when Paul is communicating with the Thessalonians. He has written them in the past. He says, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to make a visit to you. But up to this point where he writes this letter, he hasn't been able to get there again. And so some of the people in the church are sharing with others, Paul really doesn't care about us. Paul is selfish. Paul's lazy. If Paul was a real man of God, he would show up at our doorstep and pay us this visit. He'd be here at our church. He said he was going to try to get there, but he still hasn't come after a couple years. And Paul writes, and he says these words, because we wanted to come to you, I, again and again... I genuinely want to get there. I'm trying to get there. But he says, Satan hindered us. You'll understand this idea. It means to put a pothole in the road. He's broken up the way. Satan has put obstacles in front of Paul that Paul can't get there. It's not that Paul doesn't care. It's just that he can't get there. But what's happening in the church? They're assuming the worst about Paul. They're saying Paul didn't care. Paul, Paul, Paul forgot about us. How selfish of Paul. Does that ever happen today? Does it ever happen that we assume somebody didn't answer my text? Surely, they are going to hell. They didn't pay me the attention I deserve. Somebody said that they were going to stop by and drop something off, and they haven't stopped by. Some the, they 're he and us. How awful? And we start criticizing and saying things, but we don 't know the full story. we don 't know what 's going on, and we assume the worst that 's wrong. that can be devilish. Be careful of those things. I, I have to ask my question my, myself this question after looking at all these passages, why is Satan? So busy in this one area that comes up multiple times in the New Testament. Why is he so busy trying to divide us? Trying to get us angry with one another. Get us critical of one another. Over things that aren't, aren't possibly real. That have nothing to do with morality or doctrine. Why would he divide us this way? Why would he get us to talk about one another and criticize how we raise kids or how we don't raise the kids or what we wear, or what we drive and get all upset over those things? Why would he do that? Because, because when you look in the New Testament, unity within the church is a hardcore principle. Over 30 times it becomes a topic in the New Testament in the epistles alone. The idea of one another, the idea of being of one mind, Repeatedly, under the inspiration of Scripture, we're to have a unity amongst ourselves, a camaraderie in service, working together, not against each other, but working together to get the gospel out. Oh, and Satan would love to disrupt, to get us focused on the inside so we forget the outside. Jesus made it a matter of his own prayer life. The last night that he is with the disciples, he prays in John 17. And he prays this, that they all may be one. He prays not only that phrase, but he says that they may become perfectly one. We're not talking giving up doctrine or truth. And everybody and all of Christianity, no matter what we believe about Jesus, all of us becoming one big church. That's not what he's saying. He prefaces all this prior to this about holding the truth. He's talking about where we are holding the truth. When we are a Bible-believing group of believers that are holding to orthodox doctrine, that what we're supposed to do is have a unity. Not a disunity, but a unity. Where we are helping one another, not attacking one another. He prays about it. And in his prayer, he makes it a concern. He says, why? Because if we don't have this unity, we don't have witness. He says that they may be one that the world may believe that you sent me. That they may all be perfectly one that the world may know that you sent me and love them. If we can't have harmony here, it'll hurt our witness out there. So Jesus made a matter of prayer. No wonder Satan attacks Because this is something very important to the Lord. So Satan would attack in this area and I've got to stop and say, okay, what about me? Am I divisive towards people? What what, what about being jealous of somebody who got recognition at school, at home, at church for something they've done? Is there a jealousy? Is there an envy? What about critical about the way others are serving the Lord. They don't do it the same way you would. So instead of you just continuing doing your service, you're criticizing the way they would do it. It has nothing to do with doctrine, it's just they would do it different. Oh, what about this area? You refuse to let go of some hurt. Somebody said something about your kid, or your dog, or your car, or your hair. And you won't let it go. Yes, I did. I let it go. But you won't let the the comment, the comment. What about this area? What about participating in gossip? Or sharing the gossip? Or the stories? What about sharing stories about others that brings them low in the eyes of others that you're talking to? What about this idea? You won't have fellowship with certain people. You just, you, you will avoid them. You won't talk with them. You won't even greet them. Because, bottom line is, you think you're better than they are. Satan would love to have us do these things. Satan would love to have us refuse to forgive someone who has asked us for forgiveness. Whether it be in our family, or whether it be in this family. Satan's clever. And we are warned by this text. Be careful. So what do we do? What do we do if we fall and pray to like this one or the others? Well, first thing you got to do if you're guilty of this jealousy or this gossip, whatever it may this disunity, you got to confess it to the Lord and maybe to others. What you've got to do is you've got to refuse to participate in it. What you've got to do is counter it. Okay? If you're struggling with somebody... I'll invite it this way. If you struggle with me, join the crowd. If you struggle with me, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray that I would grow. I could use all the prayer that's possible so I would grow up and stop being dumb. If you struggle with somebody, instead of being critical, lift them up before the Lord. In fact, why don't you pray for others on a regular basis within the body? Sure, prayer unites us, surely, like nothing else does. Keep one another in prayer. What about doing this? What about after a service? Every service, go out and commend somebody. What about doing something like this? When there's a church fellowship, come. Come and fellowship like this evening. What about like this? What about the making it a point to compliment, to encourage others? What about doing something like speaking well of others you know, that you worship with? When you're away from them and commend them instead of criticizing them, build up one another. Instead of tearing down, get together with others. But before I close, let me, let me give you one more thought. There is another area of attack. And these aren't the only ones, but these are several. There's another fiery dart that Satan would cast at a group this size. It's called lack of assurance. The reason I say that is this. When uh, John is writing the letters of the New Testament, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote as well the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. In some of that, John has a tendency to use certain words repeatedly. Disciple is one of his frequent words. Love is very very much part of John's uh, language. And then there's another one, K-N-O-W. No. He uses a lot, a lot more than some of the others. And so when he's writing, he's writing at a time where there's false teachers that are infiltrating the church, and they're trying to mix people up. Well, one of the false teachings that is being promoted is telling them to trust in the wrong thing, trust in Jesus plus, or trust in the teacher and listen to the teacher only and don't examine for yourself. And some of the teachers are doing this. You don't need a Bible. You got me. I'm your Bible. Just do whatever I say. And so these false teachers were, they were getting involved in the church. And John is writing and he's talking about you got to trust in the right thing. you got to know where your faith is and warning them. And it's so easy. It's so easy people get caught up in trusting in the wrong thing. They trust in baptism or they trust in their parents or they trust in their citizenship or they trust in going to church to get them to heaven. You've got to, be, you've got to make sure you're trusting in the right thing. I was reading a story this past week about two Kentucky uh, horse breeders that they were in competition, their two farms, against one another. And they would have races wherever they could that they would compete against one another and whoever else was there. But these two were the top, the top two you know, horse farms in the region of Kentucky. And the one just says, I'm going to get the better of the other guy. I'm, I'm going to beat him this year. So he hired a professional jockey. And so they came to the big day of the race, and he's telling his professional jockey, you just get out there, you take whatever, do whatever it takes. You make sure you win. These, the race starts, and it isn't long before the, for, the horses from these two farms, they're way ahead of everybody else. Everybody else is in the dust, but those two horses are neck to neck. And when they're coming around the final curve, they collide with one another, purposely. There's a collision and both horses go down. the jockeys fall or the riders fall off, including the jockey. That one jockey, knowing how much his owner wanted him to win, he got up, jumped on the horse, and raced to the finish line and won. He thought, "Ah, yes, we won, we won, we won and then the owner came up, and the owner was blowing steam. He was so mad, and the jockey looked at him and said, "Well, I crossed the finish line first. we won on the wrong horse." Yeah there are people there are people who are jumping on anything nearby that may kind of look like it but it's the wrong horse i don't mean to be disrespectful you got to make sure your faith is in the right person that you're riding christ and not something or someone else christ is the way the truth and the life no man comes unto the father but by him you need jesus to save you you don't need this church you don't need these people. You don't need this preacher. You don't need baptism. You need Jesus. He alone saves. He alone. Well, so he's writing about this, and he's in the epistle. He's making it very clear, in 1 John in particular, that there's only one. There's one that gets us to heaven. One way of propitiation, that is forgiveness of sins. And as he goes on in this epistle, he talks about the false teachers, the antichrists, who are giving the false message. And John has to refute them because some of them are saying you can't know for sure you're on your way to heaven. You just got to wait. Just hang on. And when you get there, maybe you'll make it. So he writes these words. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And in the epistle... He's, he uses that word no some half, a, uh, over uh, uh, almost two dozen times. He uses that idea of no, 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 no. So writing to believers in a church saying, here's how you can know that you have eternal life. Here's the signs of it. The point being, you can know. You can know. You can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. But Satan would have you doubt." Satan saint would have you sit here and say, well, I hope so. I think so. I don't know about you. I struggled for two and, two and a half years when I first got saved. And I, 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 I was saved today, and then I'd blow it tomorrow, and I'd be, am I still saved? Am I still saved? What a horrible existence of not having that confidence you're on your way to heaven. Don't let Satan keep you in that spot. Don't let him keep you in doubts. Make sure you know and have the assurance you're on your way to heaven. Make sure that's one of his ploys. Don't fall for it. My question is, are you sure? Are you absolutely sure to this day?